Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. I don't think we'd find much disagreement that we're going through a time that's a true test of our republic and of our constitution. But when I say that, the assumption is that I'm talking about the political and social pressures on both. But what about the economic pressures? Is there a nexus between our political system and our economic system? Certainly during the Cold War, we fought to defend our political system against the economic threat of communism. So does it work the other way? Do we also have to defend our republic and our democracy against the threat of a new gilded age, of oligarchs, and of deep income inequality? The way in which these political and economic ideas are related is the basis of a new book by my guest, Ganesh Sitaraman. Ganesh Sitaraman has worked for Senator Elizabeth Warren. He served as a policy director, speechwriter, and senior counsel. Currently, he's a professor of law at Vanderbilt Law School, and a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. He's a graduate of Harvard Law School, and he was an editor on the Harvard Law Review. And it is my pleasure to welcome him here to talk about his new book, The Crisis of the Middle Class Constitution, Why Economic Inequality Threatens Our Republic. Ganesh, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you here. When we talk about income inequality and all the things that that it portends, we tend to think of it and, and tend to focus on it as an economic problem. One of the things that, that you do in the book is expand this idea and really bring it into the realm of politics and more specifically the realm of, of what the founders intended with respect to the Constitution. That's exactly right. You know, a lot of the debates that we have today about economic inequality focus on the consequences of inequality for our economy, for economic growth, for the distribution of wealth. Um, or they focus on moral questions about what people are due and, and what kind of society we want to live in uh, as, a, as an ethical matter. Um, what they don't really talk as much about is how important economic equality is actually to our constitutional system. And my argument in the book is that it's critical, that economic inequality is one of the underlying assumptions. It's a background condition uh, under which our constitutional system was designed and and that our constitutional system requires for it to continue and persist. And talk a little bit about why you believe that. Why, in fact, if we look at the work of the founders and what they did with respect to the Constitution, that it becomes clearer that this concern about economic equality was an important part of how the republic was designed. So one of the most uh, important things we can do is to go back and try to figure out what the founding generation was doing. And to do that, we also have to know what came before them. And so for most of the history of Western political and constitutional thought from the ancient Greeks and Romans all the way up until the founding, people were very worried about the problem of economic inequality. They worried that if the society was divided into a rich and a poor, the rich would oppress the poor or the poor would try to confiscate the wealth of the rich. And the result would be strife, violence, and revolution. And so the answer to that problem for, for much of history was to try to build class conflict directly into the structure of government. So in ancient Rome, there's a patrician senate for the wealthy, uh, and there's a tribune of the plebs, the plebeians, for the ordinary uh, people of Rome. In England, there's a house of lords for the wealthy, and there's a house of commons for the commoners, for everybody else. And the idea between, this, between both of these systems is that each class, rich and everyone else, uh, have a share in governing, but also a check on the other. And that's what's going to create stability and prevent strife and oppression and revolutions. 
Now, what's very striking about our Constitution is that we don't have a tribune of the plebs, uh, and we don't have a House of Lords. We have no structural checks and balances built into our Constitution that are a function of checking class power of the rich or the poor. And that is a radical change in the history of constitutional thinking, and it's something that is critical to our document, um, but that you won't really notice unless you're comparing it to what came before. And to what extent did this come about by design or simply because the founding generation didn't imagine anything like the economic inequality that we see today? So it was a combination of the two in an important way. You know, the founders knew about uh, these kind of class warfare constitutions where class is built right into the structure of government. And they actually debated whether the new country should have one of those kinds of systems. Uh, And they rejected that choice. They did not make the choice to do that, even though they were well aware of it and discussed it. Um, The reason why, though, is a combination of things. Partly, uh, and I think one of the very important parts of this, is that they knew that the American people would not accept a government like that. And the reason why is because people at the time believed that America was the most equal country in the history of the world. Uh, And I know that might sound uh, shocking um, or even uh, kind of baffling today, um, but if you go back and imagine yourself in you know, the 1770s and 1780s in America, um, what's different about America from Europe and, and from the history books they're reading is there's no feudalism in America. There's no hereditary aristocracy in America. Uh, and America appears to have these vast lands to the West, which means that any white man who's limited to white men at the time could become a property owner, and property was the main form of of wealth at the time. And so under their worldview and in their conditions and in their time, they seem to themselves to be shockingly equal uh, and to have this unique opportunity to create a government that is unlike anything the world has ever seen. Um, And that's what they do, and that's why they do it. And yet the the inequality as it related to women and African-Americans was was an issue and an issue that, that has been part of the American experiment for 250 years. That's exactly right. You know, so the the tradition I trace uh, in the book, um, I call the middle class constitutional tradition, which says that uh, to have a middle class constitution, a constitution like ours that assumes relatively low inequality, assumes a large middle class, um, you have to have a middle class among the members of the political community. But it leaves open a question of who's in the political community. And that's a question that's been contested, including violently over our history. Um, And we can also see a tradition of inclusion that's emerged over much of our history in which we've expanded our political community over time to include women, to include minorities. And I think what's really important is what happens when these two traditions intersect. You know, if you have an expansive political community, you now have to ensure that every member of that political community uh, can join the middle class. Um, And this is something that people throughout our history understood. So if you go back to Reconstruction after the Civil War, for example, the the Republicans in the North who were working on the the constitutional amendments after the Civil War, um, they weren't just fighting for political rights for the freed slaves of the South. They were also fighting for economic justice. And so this is the era where we get the phrase 40 acres and a mule because the radical uh, the, the radical idea, the idea of these uh, Reconstruction uh, Republicans was that we had to ensure that people in the South um, 
had not just political freedom but also had land uh, because you couldn't have a landed aristocracy um, or a landless class of people and still have a republic. Uh, and that's what they were fighting for. So, so there was an understanding of this throughout our history. And that fight for economic justice also became part of the civil rights movement in the 60s. Absolutely. And, and we often forget this about the civil rights uh, era. Um, but, you know, when Martin Luther King gives his I Have a Dream speech in Washington at the Lincoln uh, Memorial, you know, that march um, is, is not just the march on Washington. It was officially titled the March for Jobs and Freedom which is both about economic justice and also about political and civil rights. Uh, you know, Martin Luther King also spent the last years of his life working on the poor people's campaign. Uh, and this was a question of economic justice, not just civil and political rights. And the reason why is because these things are intertwined um, and, and have always been intertwined. With respect, though, to, to the founders, to what extent was it a chicken or the egg proposition in that the founders designed the Constitution in such a way that they thought it would promote a middle class and promote this kind of equality? And what mechanism, if any, was structured to deal with the, that lack of inequality and how the government might act in that circumstance? So I think the biggest uh, things that we have to think about is the context of the late 18th century in America, 1780s and 1790s. Um, and, and the biggest thing that is hard for us to really grapple with is that this is a pre-industrial society. There's no corporations as we understand them today. There aren't factories and machines as we understand them today. There's nothing like that going on. So the nature of the economy is very, very different then. Um, but the founders give the central government, the federal government, significant powers, including the power to regulate commerce, which is um, which is significant over the economy, um, the power to levy tariffs and taxes, uh, and to regulate a variety of, of economic issues, all part of Congress's powers in the, in the first article of the Constitution. Um, so they give the government uh, the ability to make these changes, to adapt over time. Um, and what, what I think is the most striking thing is actually what happens after the founding, uh, which is as you have massive shifts in the economy in the 19th century, industrialization, transportation revolution, the communications revolution, the closing of the frontier, the shift from artisanal and agricultural work to wage labor in factories, the rise of the corporation and then trusts and monopolies. As all of that happens by the mid-19th century and into the late 19th century, um, people are very worried that the economic conditions around them can no longer sustain our constitutional system, are no longer the kind of economy that we need to have a republic. Um, and so they argue for reforms in order to try to fix that. And so in the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era, what you get are uh, the exercise of these constitutional powers and the creation of new constitutional powers in order to try to preserve the spirit of our constitutional democracy. Um, so the progressives and, and, and the populists at that time period, you know, create the first antitrust laws uh, in order to break up big concentrations of economic power. They advocate for minimum wages and for a 40-hour work week and for equal pay for women. Um, they advocate for labor rights. Uh, they do all of this in the economic sphere in addition to pushing forward a constitutional amendment to have an income tax so that the wealthiest pay more. Um, and they do this because they understand that inequality is a big problem 
for our constitutional system. And, not and only, then at the same time, they try to attack po- politics as well and the kind of influence the wealthiest people have over politics. And so we get the first campaign finance regulations in this era uh, and, and a shift in how senators are elected to be democratically elected by the people. There was also the fear, not, not only of the economic concern, but that that would produce instability. And there was real fear about that. Talk about that. Yeah, there, were, there was real worry um, throughout much of our history that economic inequality would lead to instability. Uh, and, and, you know, in the late 19th century, um, after each panic and recession and depression uh, economically, um, there are strike waves. There's, in some cases, extreme violence. Uh, it's a serious concern, and people are very worried about it. And that's one of the things that pushes for reform is that there's a mobilized set of people out there who are protesting the conditions under which they're working uh, and they're protesting the policies of the government that have created those conditions. Talk a little bit about other historical periods where we've seen this shift towards a much more unequal situation, similar to what we have today, maybe not quite as dramatic, and how we've gotten through those. Yeah, so, so I think the, the progressive era really is the great example of this in our history. It's not too far back. It's in our own context. Um, and, and a lot of the tools that the progressives uh, came up with are still tools that are available to us today, things like antitrust, uh, taxes, regulations, uh, worker and labor union power, um, and, and support. Um, you know, so a lot of those, those tools are, are still there. I think one of the really striking things uh, that happens in, in that era is, is we, we push for those things, and the new dealers continue pushing for a lot of these uh, kinds of reforms, and they try a lot of uh, different things. You know, Franklin Roosevelt uh, wants bold, persistent experimentation, uh, and that's what the new dealers do to try to get the economy out of the Great Depression. Uh, what I think is so striking, though, is how we've forgotten about the fact that we need to create that kind of economy um, and that it's something that we actively do through public policy and through our democracy. Um, and I think that happened in the mid-20th century for a few reasons. The first is that we went through a period of extraordinary economic success. The economy was growing. The middle class was growing. Everyone seemed to be doing better um, at different rates, yes, but, but doing better. Uh, and that was something that pushed us away from it. I think the second big shift in that period um, is that uh, we started, uh, we, we stopped thinking about these issues as, as having constitutional significance. And that was partly because the New Deal was so successful. Um, New Dealers convinced, uh, you know, the courts and others that um, the Congress should have the power to regulate the economy as it wants to, um, and that this was a, a constitutional power that Congress had. And so a lot of the debate left that arena. And then the third thing you alluded to already, which was the Cold War. You know, this was an era in which, um, you know, communism was fighting capitalism. Uh, and that's a very different kind of framing of the problem than democracy fighting against aristocracies and oligarchies. And, and I know that sounds kind of ancient history, um, but what, what's important to remember is that, you know, the founding generation uh, fought a revolution against a monarchy and an aristocracy in England. And pretty much every successive wave of immigrants that were coming from Europe or elsewhere in the 19th century were fleeing aristocracies. They were fleeing feudalism in order to come to a republic. Uh, That was a meaningful distinction for people throughout much of our history. Talk about the impact of both the Depression, and you, you made reference to the New Deal before, 
and and particularly the post World War II period, where where we seem to be much more focused on this rise in the middle class. And so one of the really important things that happens in the Depression and afterwards is that we actually build the middle class. It's not something that spontaneously happened out of nowhere. Uh, it was that our democracy came together and made the choice to to build and to invest and to create something. Um, and that was a, a prosperous society for all of us. Um, and so what that meant was that you know we did a couple of things. The first is um, we put some real regulations in place to prevent speculation and to prevent some of the more predatory uh, and negative aspects of of capitalism that had caused the depression. Um, so we created the Securities and Exchange Commission to regulate the financial sector. We had a Glass-Steagall Act, which broke up uh, the banks uh, into depository banks that are separate from investment banking. Um, and that made banking much more boring and stable. Um, so we had these kind of rules in place. We created FDIC insurance is another version, uh, another set of rules in this area. Um, at the same time, we actually invested in the kinds of things that would build the middle class. So the GI Bill sends a generation of people to college. We have investments in the highway system, uh, which create jobs, but also um, you know, make it more possible for commerce to, to operate throughout the country. Um, these were investments that we were making uh, as a people and, and over time, we continue to make those kinds of investments, both to lift up the poorest people, uh, and so things like Social Security for the elderly, Medicare, Medicaid, um, Head Start, um, also contributed to the declining uh, inequality of this era. Um, and so we were actually very successful at actively building a middle class, and that was one of the, the great triumphs of the post-war uh, system of public policy. And when we look at what the pushback was, even during the New Deal period, to some of these programs, do we see kind of a model for the way these tensions are playing out today, the way these forces are opposing each other today? Yeah, so, so throughout this period, there were, there were people who were opposed, but I think what's, what's actually more striking is how much agreement there was. Mm -hmm. You know, even businesses agreed that it was important to have labor unions uh, and that they were committed to working with labor unions and to rising wages and to improving benefits and to using part of their gains from growth and productivity and, and using their profits uh, to make sure that all the stakeholders in society were doing better. Uh, what I think is more striking is what happens later, which is that you know this this covenant that um, that business and government and workers have together in the post-war era breaks down, and instead what happens is we see uh, you know deregulation of a lot of the kinds of rules that had created a more stable uh, financial sector. Um, we see uh, tax on unions and the attempt to the, the successful attempt to really break uh, break unions in a lot of different places, and then the decline of the labor movement uh, uh, in a lot of places as a result, um, and uh, and a lack of protections um, uh, for workers and other people, um, in addition to uh, you know far lower tax rates on the wealthiest people, uh, less antitrust enforcement, and more mergers and consolidation of businesses. So it's really almost a total reversal of the system that helped build uh, the middle class and the successful economy in the mid-20th century. And what does history tell us, and what do some of these other constitutional examples tell us about a system that we have now where this level of inequality exists and is not brought into balance? So I think the real worry that, that we should have here is that because relative equality is a precondition for our system, 
we don't have the kinds of checks and balances to prevent the rich from oppressing the poor or the poor from a kind of populist uprising that, uh, that, that overthrows the rich and replaces uh, you know, oligarchy with, with demagogues or, or tyrants. Um, we don't have something like that, and that means we are at risk. We're at serious risk uh, of, of two different kinds of things. The first is an oligarchy. That just means a, a government by the few, um, but you know, usually those few tend to be very wealthy. Uh, and so it's a government by a small number of, of wealthy people who use the government then to serve their own interests, and that's a serious risk on the one side. Um, but, you know, people aren't stupid. They recognize when that's happening, and they recognize uh, that they don't like it. And so what happens is people uh, protest that. They, they object to it. Um, and the way that usually happens, um, you know, commentators throughout history have suggested, uh, is not through anarchy. Uh, it happens by people, you know, finding someone, a leader, um, who's usually a demagogue, who, who captures their interest and then, uh, you know, takes power in government. Um, and, you know, Alexander Hamilton worries, for example, uh, in the Federalist Papers, that what happens in that kind of situation is demagogues turn into tyrants. And so you're left with the, the futures of oligarchy or tyranny, um, both of which uh, are pretty undesirable. And so that's the risk of not doing something about uh, the kind of underlying inequality problem. And is there a point where the political system shifts so much, as maybe it has already, that it's impossible to change this within the context of the existing political system? Well, I think there's challenges here. The first is it's really hard to know. You know, one of the things that, that happens and that commentators throughout history uh, uh, make clear is that you, know, you don't shift from a, a republic or a democracy uh, to an oligarchy by having a constitutional convention and everyone declaring, you know, we want to be an oligarchy now. That, that's not how it works. Uh, the, the way it works is it very slowly happens. It happens through the passage of new kind of laws. And then one day you wake up and it turns out everything is really different. And um, this was not the kind of society that, that you wanted to happen, so, that you wanted to have. So it's a very slow process. And so it's hard to know when it happens. Um, and that's a real challenge uh, of, of how we figure it out. But, but I do think change is still possible through the system. And part of the reason why is, you know, we, we fundamentally still do have a democratic system, uh, at least uh, uh, still right now, um, in which the people can vote and can change um, who our elected officials are uh, and can protest that and can um, bring, about, uh, bring about a change in, in, in policy as a result. So I do think there's opportunity, but it requires you know, massive numbers of people um, to really get active as, as citizens, to participate and, and to vote to, to change their, the system. Of course, the, the counter overlay to that is the degree to which money and politics have become so synonymous today. Absolutely. So the challenge is that at the same time, you know, we have a system in which um, the government is increasingly responsive to the wealthiest people and corporations. And those people and corporations, as they get wealthier, uh, have the resources and tools to be able to influence the government. And so it creates this kind of vicious cycle. Um, and and that, is, that is the big challenge. Uh, and so I think, you know, part of how we need to think about the world um, today and the world of politics today is if you want to reclaim uh, our republic and, and save our constitution and our constitutional system, um, you have to be uh, invested in fighting against the influence of money and, um, and, 
and, and in, in, in politics. And that's not just on the campaign finance side in elections, but that's on lobbying, that's on the revolving door of people going in and out of industry into government. Um, you know, there's people who go from industry directly into jobs as regulators, regulating their old industry. Um, and, you know, there, there's a lot of conflicts of interest that can emerge from that kind of thing. That kind of thing has to be part of our conversation, not just campaign finance reform. And and is there something, though, from an economic perspective, is there something inherent in the way the economy is changing today, not unlike what we went through in the Industrial Revolution, but as we move into this digital, further and further into this digital economy, and, and the nature of work changes, the, the nature of so much in the economy changes, that makes this kind of inequality almost baked into the system. So I think one of the big changes that's happened it, that's similar to about 100 years ago in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era um, is the consolidation of economic power into a small number of firms. And so if you look in almost any sector of the economy, there's a smaller and smaller number of companies that dominate. So we actually have comparatively little competition actually going on in a lot of sectors of the economy, and we have lots of consolidation. Uh, and that's a problem. It's a problem because it means that within those sectors, there's less innovation, there's less competition, uh, there's more of an opportunity to squeeze startups and small businesses. Um, but it also means that the kind of big entities have greater ability to influence government uh, and to lobby for certain kinds of things and to get rules that uh, benefit them and prevent any future competition. Um, so I think that is a similarity, and this is partly why you know, a bit more than 100 years ago, the populists and progressives invented antitrust law um, and and really pushed for it strongly. And those are laws that are still on the books and that we could aggressively enforce and I think would have a big impact uh, on our economy right now. Um, the, the other thing that I'll just say is that, you know, we shouldn't think of the changes in the economy, whether it's technology or consolidation or anything else, as something that's you know, God-given or that comes from nature or that, you know, springs forth uh, organically from nowhere, you know, these are all shaped and created by laws, and we have the power to be able to shape their future direction. Um, you know, I'll just give you a quick example of a technology, the television. If you were to turn on the TV in the middle of the day, you will not find bad language, you will not find um, nudity, uh, and that's because we've chosen to regulate that and to say, we don't want children to be able to see that during the day, we're not going to put it on. Um, that's a choice. That's a choice that a democracy makes. Uh, and so for all the new technologies or other things that are out there, you know, we can make choices about um, you know, how we want to live as a society and what kinds of things we want those technologies to be used for or not to be used for. And finally, Ganesh, do you have reason for optimism in all of this? I do. I think the biggest thing that makes me optimistic is when you look out um, at people, even though we are very, very divided uh, today, um, pretty much uh, a lot of people on both sides of, of the political spectrum agree that our system is deeply broken, uh, and they think the system is rigged, and they think it's rigged because it is. Uh, and that's I think a shared foundation, at least, you know, whether you're a Bernie Sanders supporter or a Donald Trump supporter, that the, the general sense that our system is deeply broken in this way, um, and the recognition that we have to have fundamental change to fix that, that is something that we share in common, and that is something that we can we can build upon um, as a recognition of one of the problems for for how we really get back to saving our our constitution uh, and supporting our democracy. 
Ganesh Siddharaman. The book is The Crisis of the Middle Class Constitution. It's just out in paperback from Vintage. Ganesh, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you. Appreciate it.